This morning I want to begin by sharing a couple of stories with you that I think that by nature you will probably find, as many of us do, probably uh, maybe a little interesting, a little, well, hmm, I didn't know that, or maybe for some it's even sort of an inspiring kind of deal. Let me, let me just read a couple of, of little bullet-pointed type stories here. Um, and in America, we love these, these kinds of stories. We do. There's a guy named uh, Ingvar Kamprad. Maybe you've heard of him. His net worth is $31 billion. If you haven't heard of him, here's your opportunity. He began to develop a business as a young boy selling matches to neighbors from his bicycle. He found that he could buy matches very cheaply in Stockholm, Sweden, where he's from, and sell them individually at a low price and still make a good profit. From matches, he expanded to selling fish, Christmas tree decorations, seeds, and later ballpoint pens and pencils. When he was 17, Comrade's father gave him a reward for succeeding in his studies. He used this money to establish what has grown into IKEA. Maybe you've heard of IKEA. The acronym IKEA is made with the initials of his name, Ingvar Comrade, plus those of uh, Emil Tarid, the family farm where he was born, and the nearby village Anganard. I, I practiced really hard this week to pronounce those correctly, so just bear with me. Rags to Riches story from a guy in Sweden who started off selling matches and now is a $31 billion enterprise known as IKEA. If you don't know anything about IKEA, look it up. It is an amazing furniture line, and uh, many of you probably own some things from that. They have various retail outlets throughout the United States and across the world. Uh, here's another story. Maybe some of you have heard of this lady, Oprah Winfrey, net worth $2.5 billion, born in rural Mississippi to a poor, unwed teenage mother, and later raised in the inner city of Milwaukee, Winfrey was raped at the age of nine, and at 14 gave birth to a son who died in infancy. She went to live with a man she now calls her father, a barber in Tennessee. She landed a job in radio while still in high school and began co-anchoring the late evening news at the age of 19. Uh, she, at 32, became a millionaire when her show was taken national. And because of the amount of revenue that she generated, she is now part owner, of course, in that company. And by 1994, the show's ratings were thriving, and she negotiated a contract that earned her uh, more than nine figures a year. She is considered the richest woman in the entertainment world, and that was by the early 1990s. And since then, she has remained as one of the uh, Forbes 400 list, one of the 400 wealthiest people in America. Rags to riches. What incredible stories. Uh, of folks that you may have heard of, may not have heard of. I, I read some commentary at the uh, bottom of it. I looked up these different lists of rags to riches stories, and, and one person said this, if you're having a tough time right now, take a few tips from, from these people. Never lose sight of your dreams. Always work hard to achieve them, and keep your eyes out for your next big opportunity. You never know when it will present itself. But you can be certain it won't while you're sitting at home. So put yourself out there. What have you got to lose? And another person said this, in times of trouble, good old rags to riches stories give us hope that we too will persevere and achieve the American dream. Those are stories that are true. There are stories that may inspire. There are stories that may uh, cause you to think, well, <laughs> they must have a lot of luck in there. Um, certainly that's uh, all included. Let me give you another side of the story that I'll draw a connection to in just a second. Let me give you some statistics on the church in America. We've seen the state of wealth and rags to riches that is possible in our country. Here's the state of our church. 
There are approximately 195 million unchurched people in America. That's up to 75%, sometimes more. Uh, the U.S. population over the last several years is up 11.4%, but church membership is down 9.5%. That's a swing of 20%. The church has failed to gain an additional 2% of the population in the last 50 years, and no one county in America has more people in church than it did 10 years ago. Not one county in our country. One half of all churches added zero conversions last year. Of the 350,000 churches in America, 80% are either plateaued or declining in attendance. Of the 15% that are growing, only 1% is growing through conversions. The other 14% are growing primarily through transfer growth. And that means that only 1% of our churches in America are making a dent on the unsaved population in our country. North America is now the only continent where Christianity is not growing. The only continent where it's not growing. In fact, the United States is the third largest unchurched nation in the world. And all that says basically that the church, by and large, is having little or no effect on American behavior. One reason for this, I think, is our love for stories like I just read. I think we have such a love for our wealth, such a love for what we can accomplish, that oftentimes our love for that and our love for ourselves combines itself to amount to us turning our back on God and pursuing other things besides the Lord. Certainly those stories are noteworthy, they're inspirational, and yet I believe here in America we have often led ourselves down a path that is not exactly the way God would want us to go. In Luke chapter 16, I'll read this particular verse to you, which I think highlights uh, this particular connection, Luke chapter 16, verse 14, he says, uh, Luke records this, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him, talking about Jesus. And he told them, Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. What is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. We love those rags-to-riches stories. We'll watch the Biography Channel and watch all these folks and see them rise from nothing, and we love that, and we set our sights on those things. And in the process, if we're not careful, human nature and the pattern of this world will take us down a path that turns our back on the Lord. And so I think we have to go to what God says about things, because in God's economy, there is a great reversal. God does not value the things that we typically value. Maybe you've come across that. But we typically value having everything lined out. I read somewhere this week that someone was really upset. I think it was a pastor, and someone asked him, Pastor, uh, what's the trouble? And the guy said, well, the trouble is I'm in a hurry and God's not. You been there? We, we sometimes don't think the way that God thinks. We often don't. And this can cause great confusion because we're not sure which set of principles to operate by many times. I think that's true. We are told one thing in just popular culture and in our world and another thing by the Scripture. And so I, I think that where we need to come back to is to get a biblical perspective on wealth. What does God have to say about it all? I think we'll notice in the Scripture how different uh, the, the view of, of God is from the view of our world. What God values, the world doesn't always value. What the world values, God certainly does not. 
Uh, it is countercultural to look at what the Bible says about wealth. It is completely different. Um, and we may not like it. Uh, Satan will try maybe to convince you not to listen or to get angry or something like that. But God has spoken. We're going to see what God has said and what He hasn't said. And I'll tell you what He hasn't said. God has not said that wealth in and of itself is sinful. It's not the case at all. Not in any way does God say that wealth in and of itself is wrong. Certainly God has blessed many people with wealth. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, in the Old Testament, you see time after time after time where God blesses His servants with wealth. And so it's not the having of wealth that is the issue. Certainly we know that. It's how we perceive it, how we handle it, what we do with it, that then becomes evident as to our character and so on. And so this morning, uh, I'm, I'm not here uh, to give you, you know, five steps to financial freedom and independence or three ways to make a little extra cash on the side or something like that. I mean, that's maybe good advice, but I really want to get into God's Word and, and see what He has to say. Uh, about uh, about wealth and how we should handle it, uh, both when we have it, when we don't, and uh, and and the permeating thinking throughout our world. So, this morning, I know uh, for some, as I said, uh, this may uh, be something that uh, hits very far from home. You say, "Look, I don't I don't have any wealth at all." I, you know, I'm not sure you're talking to me. Or others, it may hit very close to home. Maybe a wealthy person. I don't know. But either way, I, I'd like for us to to just begin this morning uh, with a word of prayer and, uh, and ask the Lord for wherever we are uh, on this spectrum to teach us what He would have us to do with what we have and how He has blessed us. So if you would, just join your hearts with me in prayer and, um, and let's go to Him. Lord, um, I pray that this morning we, we would see what You have to say, or that, uh, that Your opinions would come through. And so, Lord, we trust what you have to say. We know that your word is infallible, that it's inerrant, that it is perfect. We know that you have great things planned for us. And, Lord, we know you've spoken to the issue of wealth and money and so on. And so, God, we pray that we would approach this this morning with open hearts and open minds. And, uh, Lord, that we would walk away different. And that we would see exactly what you want us to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you got your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to James chapter 5. And we've been, of course, in a series for several weeks now. We'll finish up at the end of September on the book of James, looking at what authentic Christianity is all about. And he gets to chapter 5, and he has some pretty strong words here that I hope to help you understand what they mean and what exactly is God saying through James. So look with me in James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined, your clothes are moth-eaten, your silver and gold are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your field cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord. You have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Boy, some strong words that, that come through in this particular letter. What is he saying here? What, what does God say I, as a result of all of this? What is God saying about wealth and money? Let me give you a working principle. Here's what we're going to look at today and kind of hash out and figure out how we can apply this to our lives. I believe the principle, overarching principle, 
both in this passage and in God's Word as a whole about wealth and money, is that we should use money, use wealth, as a tool in your hand, but don't let it rule in your heart. Use it as a tool in your hand, but don't let it rule in your heart. A tool in your hand, but don't let it rule in your heart. What is, what is seen here in James chapter 5? These are strong words. What are we looking at? We're looking at the exact opposite of that principle. We're looking at people who have let money rule in their hearts, and it's changed everything about them. It's led them down a path that God was not pleased with. And they are condemned by that and condemned for that. Now, there's a connection between this. James, of course, is the half-brother of Jesus, and he relied uh, to, a, to a large extent on the, the principles from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through 7. And you can see the direct parallel between this and what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where what? Moth and rust do not destroy. And then he goes on in verse 24 and he says, You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You can see the connection James is making here by these folks who have done the exact opposite of that. They have, they have loved, been lovers of money, lovers of wealth, and they've let that be their guide through life. So what is God saying in this passage? Basically, he's saying that what the world values, God condemns. Those who put their hopes and set their sights on just getting more stuff or having more money, they have a rude awakening coming because that is not what God values. What God is not saying, as I mentioned before, is that, that wealth in and of itself is sinful. God's not saying that. He's not saying that at all. He, he simply echoes here uh, what earlier Scripture has said, that those who have a lot in this world tend to uh, not see their need for Jesus Christ. I think that's evident in our world today. Those who have the most tend to not see. That doesn't mean that everybody. That doesn't mean that people here. That just means that's the pattern. The Scripture makes that clear, that those who have a lot in this world sometimes have trouble seeing their need for Jesus Christ because they have so much here. It's almost as if heaven has already come for them. What, what do I have to look forward to? Why should I submit my life uh, to a Savior? And so uh, that is, the Lord is not saying here, obviously, that wealth in and of itself is sinful, but He is saying that those who depend on what they have instead of the Lord have a rude awakening coming. So the principle is to use money as a tool in your hand, but don't let it rule in your heart. And the Lord gives us several reasons here why that is. First reason is in verses 2 and 3, because wealth doesn't last. Wealth doesn't last. Some of you could say, amen, it goes in my bank account and right out the next day. You know, I just that's the way it is, you know. And, I, you know, I, I get that, I understand. Um, you know, he says here, miseries are coming, your wealth is ruined, your clothes are moth-eaten, your silver and gold are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and so on. Uh, Miseries are coming partly because what we have won't last. We're, we're, it's going to go away. It's not eternal. Rarely does it even last a lifetime. You know, if I were to ask you how many of, of this particular product have you gone through in your life, and this one, and so on. I mean, you know, how many cars have you owned? How many how many appliances have you owned? How many things have you know have you gone through? It's just you count them, and you oh, they don't they don't last forever. Wealth in and of itself does not last. He says they're ruined, they're moth-eaten, they're corroded. What you have stays here. You can be buried with all you want, but it's staying in the ground. You, you know, the old saying is you never see a U-Haul behind a, a hearse. And you, you know, you could, you could have it all buried with you, and it's going to stay right there. What you have does not go with you. And that's a simple principle, but maybe it's a good reminder. It doesn't last, and it certainly cannot do anything for us in eternity. And then verse 3 he gives us the, the indication that your wealth will testify against you. This is an interesting concept. Your wealth will testify against you. In verse 3 he says, 
uh, your wealth will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire because you stored up treasure uh, in the last days. Money talks, and it reveals a ton about who you are. A ton. Same in my life. If we were to each get out our checkbooks and figure out where we're spending our money, it would say a lot about us, good, bad, or otherwise. Simple and true. It reveals whether you are greedy or generous. It reveals whether you are selfish or giving. It reveals whether you are wasteful or a good steward. It reveals whether you are obedient to Scripture or apathetic to what God commands. So your bank statements, your checkbook, your goals, and so on, they speak loud and clear about what you believe. My checkbook, my goals, my spending, it speaks loud and clear about whether or not I've submitted to the Lord in that area of my life. And so maybe you take an inventory this morning, and, and maybe you would just ask God to reveal what, what God is my money saying about me. If it's going to testify against me, I want it to say some positive things. I want it to say that I was generous. I want it to say that I did my best to line up my financial priorities with what God prioritizes. And I'm sure you're the same way. I would not want my money saying, well, he was selfish and greedy. I wouldn't want my money saying, well, you know what? The only person he cared about was him. I wouldn't want my money saying that. And so I have to be honest and say, okay, God, what is it saying? What is my wealth saying about me? Because it will testify against you. God warns that those who refuse to submit to God and instead trust and, and lust after those riches will one day stand before Him and all that stuff will be called as witnesses. And they will reveal what exactly we were about. Money talks, and unfortunately, it is always honest. Wealth doesn't last. It will testify against you. And then in verses 4 and 6, we get this idea that a love for money will erode your character. A love for money will erode your character. What does the Bible say? The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Certainly we know that. So a love for money will erode your character. What happened to these people that James describes? Look at verse 4. The pay that you withheld from your workers uh, that you who reaped in your field cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord. Verse 6. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. You see how their character got corrupted because they fell in love with all the stuff they could have and could gain in this world. And certainly we know that that is the case for us. They withheld pay. They took advantage of those who didn't have as much of them as them. They pulled strings and they played special connections and so on against those who could not. They took advantage at every turn. It was ultimately only for their own benefit. They, they gained an upper hand simply because they could. That's the people that James is talking about. But I wonder how they started off in life. They don't get their background. I wonder if these folks started off much like many of us here, just going through life and trying to do the best we can to honor God. Maybe they started off that way. I don't know. <clears throat> and one day they fell in love with money. And it became what drove them. And it became everything that consumed them. I wonder if that's the case. But it's obvious that their love for money had major consequences. If you even think about the Ten Commandments and how you can build your character on those, you get to the tenth one, and anybody remember the tenth one? Do not what? Not a trick question. You guys got this. I know you got this. All right? Don't get nervous on me today. We've already taken the offering. Trust me. All right? I'm, we're not taking another offering later on. I'm not asking for your money today. All right? Promise. I'm not angry at anybody. I love you all. I really want you to know that. In fact, I'll tell you this. <clears throat> I had the hardest time this week. I'll just be honest with you for a second. I had the hardest time this week preparing this sermon. 
Because this is an area of my life where I struggle. I just want you to know that. This is an area of my life where I struggle. Not because I have and have and have and done all so much, but because even sometimes when I don't have, I still have a love for money. All right? I just want you to know that. So when I preach this stuff, trust me, I am in the middle of dealing with it. I preach to myself, and I pray that God works on me. So let's, we're on common ground. All right? So the Tenth Commandment. Everybody's relaxed. Now, the Tenth Commandment is do not what? Some of you just went to Exodus 20 and looked it up. Do not what? Covet. Do not covet. All right, good. Not a trick question. All right, only 10 of them. Get a one ten shot on that one. Do not covet. And it says do not covet this and that and so on from your neighbor or anything that your neighbor has. I really believe that by breaking the 10th commandment, we are also in danger of breaking the others. Because if you go down and you look at the other commandments, the first one is don't put anything above God. Don't make any graven image of the Lord. And you go down and it talks about murder and, and, and thievery and, and, and adultery and so on and so forth. And well, if we get our minds so twisted by wanting and gotting to have, and I've got to have this and so on, we can very easily see our character erode to where now, well, I, you know, I only, I was jealous and I kind of wanted this, but boy, it can go straight to the top. And that easily can replace God in our lives. I hope you see how, how breaking maybe that 10th commandment of having to get more and so on can lead us to breaking all the rest. In this particular passage, when these guys are loving their money, I think the scariest thing is what they seemingly don't even realize. And that's at the end of verse 4. The pay that, the, that you withheld from the workers who reaped your field, what, cries out, and this is, this is the scary part, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ear of who? The Lord of hosts. And they seemingly don't realize this. Their love for money has led them down a path that has eroded their character, and they seemingly don't realize that God is paying attention, that God is watching, that God knows what's going on. And that's not a, a subtle threat, it's just the truth. God knows what's going on. He knows our hearts. And they seemingly don't realize or recognize that. And then you see they, in verse 5, they live this life of luxury that's all about them. and They're not concerned about anybody else. And we see that this, this principle comes through that wealth not used for God's glory is condemned by Him. Wealth not used for God's glory is condemned by Him. God did not give us what we have in order for us just to enjoy it all by ourselves and to say, oh, thank you, God, for being so good to me. God gave it to us for a purpose to be used for His glory so that His fame can be more widely known. And these folks that are described here in verse 5 have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. They've hoarded all they can get. They're included in this picture of those folks who have sort of turned their back on God. They've done all these things. They've lived such luxurious lives. They've taken all they can take. They've stored everything up they can get. They've been all about themselves. And they've done that while others have been in need. And while they've had the means to meet those needs. And instead, they've just withheld these wages, as we've said. This is an example of what they did back then. They've lived like kings when other folks are suffering at their expense. They've ignored the poor in their world. And they've really ignored the work that God had for them to do. They've set their sights on money, getting more. But the truth is, like many things, getting more is never enough. I heard it said one time of a guy who was really, really rich. I forget exactly who was a famous person. And, and they said, you know, you've got so much money. How, how much is enough? And his response is, one dollar more. Just, just one more dollar. That'll be enough. And, of course, when he gets that next dollar, of course, it'll be one dollar more. You ever felt that way? Boy, I tell you what, what a trap. I'm sure we've all experienced that. We get a little bit more, and, well, that's not enough. I need a little bit more. 
I, I tell you, like I said, that's a, a struggle. But it's never enough. Ecclesiastes points that out. Solomon is believed is in tradition anyway as the writer. And in chapter 2, he lists all these things that he accomplished. And he gets to chapter 2, verse 11, and he said, all of it was nothing. It was all vanity. It was just a chasing after the wind. It did not amount to anything that really mattered, he said. And Solomon was the richest guy of his time. And if he says that about wealth, that he wished he'd used it more for God's glory than how much do we need to pay attention to that. The problem was not that they had a lot. It's not that they were rich in this particular passage. It's that they never considered the will of God for what they had. Uh, they never sought to use it for His glory and His purposes. And so as a result, that wealth that they had was condemned because they never considered God in the matter. Obviously, there's a lot of good reasons why we should use money simply as a tool in our hands instead of letting it rule in our hearts. But the next question then is, how do you do that? I'm going to give you a couple of principles this morning and then we'll close. How do you go about using money in that way? You say, look, I don't want to be a person who's fallen in love with money. I don't want to be that person. Whatever God brings me, if I have a little or a lot, I want to use it for His glory. How do I do that? I think one of the first things you can do is to seek things that money cannot buy. Seek things that money cannot buy. If it doesn't last, why operate as if it's the most important thing in the world? Now, that's a rhetorical question, and we all know the answer to that, that we should not operate as if it's the most important thing in the world. But let's come face to face with it this morning. If, if it is not going to last, then we need to seek things that money cannot buy. What is it that money can't buy? Money can't buy true and lasting joy. It can't do it. Why? Because it's never enough. Because it won't last. True and lasting joy only comes from a, a deep and growing relationship with Jesus Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit. That's the only place that it comes from. Money cannot buy a great family. Now, it, it may be able to buy you a vacation here and there. That's nice. But it can't buy you a great family. Because if you don't have a great family, going on vacation ain't going to fix your great family. Why? Because you come home to all the same problems that you left. And so, it can't buy you a great family. Let me tell you this. You, you may have lots of money. You may feel like you're living check to check, week to week. You may be somewhere in between. But none of it matters in the development of your family. You don't have to have anything. You can have a lot. You can have a little. There are people that have a lot that have awful families. There are people that have a lot that have great families. There are people that have very little that have wonderful families. And there are people that have very little that have awful families. It's evident money cannot buy that. And so parents, husbands, wives, I, I encourage I stand with you in, 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 in thinking and knowing this. Let's be about the things in our families that money cannot buy. Cannot buy your relationship with your husband or wife or a relationship with your children. And so let's go after those things that money cannot buy. Money cannot, it cannot buy peace in your heart. I, I struggle with this because I think, well, if only this or if only that or this or whatever, well, then everything would just kind of settle down. And that's a lie. Well, I've believed a lot of lies in my life. I can't buy you peace in your heart. Money can't buy you salvation. The Bible talks about that over and over, about how those who trust in their wealth to get them into heaven, you, I mean, you, can't, you can't buy your way in. And so it can't buy you salvation. Maybe you make your own list. Well, here, here are the things that I'm recognizing money cannot buy. I'm going to begin to seek these things. You have a list of five or six things that you come up with. And, and, and that's what you begin to pursue. And when you do, you watch what happens. Money and wealth will be more of a tool in your hand and less a ruler in your heart at that point when you begin to seek things that money can't buy. Secondly, give generously. 
Now again, we've already taken the offering. Relax. Give generously. In this passage, God condemns those who are greedy and stingy. And He calls them out for withholding what others needed. That, that's, what he, that's what He's doing. And the best way, if you sense and you, and you, with, with you and God, you're sitting there and you're talking with God and He reveals that there's some greed and stinginess in your heart. And let me tell you, you don't have to have a lot of money to be greedy and stingy. You can have very little money and anywhere in between. Okay? So it's all of us. If God reveals any of that, the, the best way to break the power of greed is not by saying, Lord, I'm sorry. If you'll just give me more, I promise. You know? Or, or God, I, I repent. You know, I, I, I pray those prayers. You know, I, the best way, and in fact, maybe the only way to break the power of greed is to give generously. To give generously. To find someone who is in need and give to them. To find a worthwhile cause that is doing something that will in, in, empower and further the kingdom of God and give toward that. To find someone who needs it and simply give it away. And so maybe you, you know folks like that. One, one easy way to, to start with, by the way, is when you go to lunch today, is to increase the percentage on your tip. Just a little bit. Give, start, just start with little stuff. And I say that because I know I understand. Regardless of what kind of service you get, just give generously. Well, they didn't. They brought me tea instead of water. Give generously. I, I understand. Give them a break. Give generously. And I, I say that, and it almost sounds in jest, but it really is true. Those little things add up. Way to break the power of greed is to give generously. The third principle is this. How do you go about it? Let God determine your standard of living. Let God determine your standard of living. Don't let everybody else determine what it's going to be because you can't keep up with them anyway. You can't keep up with what you perceive everyone else has. And most of the time, they don't have all those things anyway. We just perceive that they do. And so I've heard it said, you know, we often buy a bunch of things we can't afford to impress people we don't even like. You know, that's, isn't that true? Sometimes we do those things. So let God determine your standard of living. They were condemned in this passage because they pursued a life of luxury and self-indulgence. They were setting their standards according to what their own desires dictated. They had to have more. They had to keep up. They had to outpace everyone else. But that's never going to end because it's never enough. When I played baseball in high school and college, my, my coaches would always remind me, there's always somebody better than you. doesn't matter how good you get. Remain humble because there's always somebody better than you. And in this world of money, there's always somebody who has more than you. So if you're trying to keep up with them, it is a never-ending journey that will leave you hopeless and empty at the end of it all. So let God determine your standard of living. What if we did that? What if we said, God, I want you to be so involved in my finances, I want you to be so involved in my life, that I'm going to sit down with, with my spouse, my, uh, my, my family, whatever it may be. We're going to look at our budget and we're going to say, God, you show us how to spend it. You show us how to, how to use it. You show us what to do with it. You may have never done that. Some of you are freaking out right now. You may have never done that. I understand. But, but if you'll let God determine your standard of living, you see what happens. Money will then become a tool in your hand and it will no longer rule in your heart because you won't be keeping up with what everybody else thinks. You'll be concerned only with what God thinks. And operating by His principles is obviously the best way to go. Another way to do this is simply, uh, use it as a play on words, I guess, to simplify it kind of goes along with the one before. To break your dependence on luxury, to break your dependence on self-indulgence, just being all about me, 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 figure out what you have that you don't need. Some of you do this once a year, and it's called a giant yard sale. You know, and 
and you get all your junk out of your house, and somebody comes along, they buy all your junk, and the next year it's in their yard sale, and, you know, and they haggle you down from 25 cents to a dime, and, you know, and my response is just take it, please. If you load it in the truck, you can have it. I don't want it. If I really wanted it, it wouldn't be sitting in the yard, so just take it, you know. And I'm not a good yard sale guy. Just I'm not a good negotiator. You know, if we ever have a yard sale and I'm out there, that's the time to come because you're getting it for free. If my wife is out there, not so much. But, but just, you know, but what do you have that you don't need? What do you have that's going to waste? I mean, seriously, think about it. Boy, I tell you what, if I went into my attic right now over there at the parsonage, there are several things that I would look and say, what in the world did I keep that? Are you with me? You know, and I've had it for 15 years, you know, and I'm hanging on to it for something, I, you know. And, but what do we have that's going to waste? What do you have that someone else could, could truly benefit from? Well, I guarantee if we, if, if we as a church were to, to, to make a, an inventory list of all those things, we could, do a, we could tremendously bless someone or probably many people. Because I know if, if you're anything like me, you've probably got lots of things that are sitting around that you're not really using that you could bless someone with. And so maybe we break our dependence on stuff by just simplifying what we have. And do it, and we'll see what happens. Money will become more of a tool and less of a ruler. And then the overarching principle today on how can we go about making money a tool and not the ruler is to give Jesus His rightful place in your heart. Give Jesus His rightful place in your heart. Two things happen when you let money rule in your heart. It erodes your character, and it removes the possibility of Jesus being in charge. And the truth is, that's what this is really all about. Because as I said, it's not about how much you have and how little you have. God does not condemn wealth in and of itself. But He does condemn when Jesus does not have His rightful place in our hearts. Money is not to rule. Jesus is. Money is not to call the shots. Jesus is. If you go back to the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is what? Have no other gods before me. You follow that one, guess what happens? All the others become a whole lot easier. You follow that one, the, the others typically fall in line because Jesus has His rightful place in our hearts. My kids like to watch a movie called Ratatouille. And I, love, I actually like it. I, I'm thankful that, that the movies that have come out in recent years, though they're appropriate for children, I also can get a little bit of a laugh out of. Ratatouille is a movie. If you haven't seen it, this may be a little bit of a, of a spoiler for you, but it, it, Ratatouille is a movie that is about a rat who is a cook. And he is an excellent cook, but obviously as a rat, he has very little opportunity to display his skills in the human world. And so, so he finds a guy who who is not a very good cook, and they work together. The most interesting part of this whole deal is that early in the movie, the rat and, and the other guy, they determine how they're going to work together. They figure it out that by the rat sitting on top of the guy's head, pulling on his hair, somehow, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a movie, so, you know, play along. Somehow his arms and legs and all move whenever the rat moves his hair. And so what he does throughout the movie is the rat's always there under his hat, controlling his every movement, turning this guy into an incredible cook who has no skill whatsoever. None. And so the rat there, the whole movie, he's, you know, he's moving, they're cooking some incredible things. The guy winds up being the, the taking over the restaurant and so on. He's, he's a famous cook, and, and it all starts with the rat controlling what the guy was doing. And I really believe that in the very same way, that that's the role that Jesus has to play in our hearts. 
We are not puppets on strings, but He lives through us. And by His strength and His wisdom and His skill, we can, we can appropriately move through life in such a way that pleases Him. And He moves our hand this way. He directs us this way. He leads us down this path. And it's always the right path. Always. So let Jesus have His rightful place in your heart. And just like that rat, let Him control what you do. The people in James chapter 5 here, they refused to give Jesus His rightful place. They paid for it, the Bible says, for all eternity. I hope and pray that we won't make that same mistake. Because salvation begins with giving Jesus His rightful place in our heart. And if you're a person today who has resisted and not wanted anything to do with the Lord, understand the passage here talks about the fact that you can gain everything on this world that it has to offer. You can be rich, you can be famous, you can have a great story, but if Jesus does not have His rightful place in your heart, it is all for nothing. And it will not last. And it will erode your character. And it will speak against you. So give Him your right, His rightful place. I hope and pray that you're not going to be, that I won't be, what could be easily called a riches to rags story. Having it all here in Luke chapter 9, verse 25, Jesus says, What good does it, does it benefit a man at all if he gains everything here and yet forfeits his soul? Boy, what truth. If you let money be simply a tool in your hand instead of ruling in your heart, it won't be popular, it won't come naturally, and it won't seem normal to anybody else. But it will set you free. And it will enable you to please God. And it will keep you from gaining the whole world and forfeiting your soul. Give Jesus His rightful place in your heart. Use money as a tool. Thank God for it. Thank God for His blessings when they come along. But let's take the warning from Scripture and let's put it into practice by giving Jesus His rightful place and using money as a tool and not letting it rule in our hearts. Won't you pray with me? Lord, uh, passages like James 5, uh, they hit home to me. So, Lord, I know that that's probably true of other folks here. God, I thank you that, that in and of itself, that what we have is not sinful. And so, Lord, we know that we have to sort through that and understand that just having a lot or even having a little, none of that, that's not sinful. But, Lord, help us not to sin in how we view it and how we value what we have. Lord, help us to be people who give you your rightful place in our hearts and use money as a tool in our hand, but not letting it rule in our hearts. Lord, I pray for those who are blessed with a lot. God, I pray that they would continue if that's their path, or maybe, Lord, they'd recognize today that the incredible blessing they have in order to further your kingdom. Lord, I pray for those who are already on that path, that have a lot, and that's what they're doing. Lord, thank you for those people. Lord, for those who seem to, to live check to check, and we think, well, if I only had this, and if I only had that, Lord, I pray that we would recognize today that money doesn't last, that it's only a tool, 
And Lord, may we seek the things that money can't buy. Lord, for those today who have been resisting you maybe for a long time, I pray today would be the day that they would give you the, the rightful place that you have in their hearts. They'd receive Jesus who lived and died for our sins. They'd receive Jesus as their Savior today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.